Good morning. What a wonderful place to be to start the new year. In church, praising God, hearing his word, and fellowshipping with each other. If this isn't your, this isn't your custom, please make it your custom. It'll be a happy new year then. As I look over the past two years, there's one word that comes to my mind to describe these years. Suffering. The COVID pandemic that took so many lives. The increasing crime nationwide. Shootings that have killed so many in schools and churches and malls. The deadly hurricane, Ian, that destroyed countless homes and left such devastation in his path. Earthquakes, the rising inflation, the war in Ukraine where cities have been demolished, thousands killed, millions fleeing for safety. And as we see these images, it's easy to be discouraged and disheartened. Such intense suffering for so many people. And I ask myself, will the new year that begins today, the year 2023, be any different? I don't think so. I firmly believe we're living in the end times. And the Bible tells us that there will be suffering. And so I want to deal with a subject this morning that isn't always easy to present in a way that's understandable, acceptable, and livable. Suffering from God's perspective. I was preparing to preach on this subject in Brazil and was reflecting on the sufferings that many of our church people had gone through in the previous months. I made a list. The death of members of our church family by an accident or infirmity. People with cancer or other illnesses that cause pain. Financial problems. Unemployment or a job that didn't pay enough. Unpaid debts or expecting payment for a debt that never came. Spiritual problems. Temptations not overcome. Family problems. Couples divorcing. Infidelity. Rebellious children. Many of the people who suffered these things were Christians. And the question that came from their lips was, why me, Lord? Other questions I've heard in counseling. Why did God let my son die? Why did God permit that I lose my job? Why did God permit that my business went under? Where is God? Why didn't God stop it? Why doesn't God care? Why doesn't God help? If he's a loving and all-powerful and good God, then surely the suffering should not exist. And yet it does. And what's worse, it's often the innocent who are victimized. Agnostic-turned-Christian Sheldon Van Alken wrote the following. If only villains got broken backs or cancers, if only cheaters and crooks got Parkinson's disease, we could see a sort of celestial justice in the universe. But as it is, a sweet-tempered child lies dying of a brain tumor, 
A happy young wife sees her husband and child killed before her eyes by a drunken driver. And we soundlessly scream at the stars. Why? Why? A mention of God, of God's will, doesn't help a bit. How could a good God, a loving God, do that? How could he even let it happen? And no answer comes from the indifferent stars. End quote. Christian author Philip Yancey, in his book, Where is God When It Hurts?, begins his chapter with this title, A Problem That Won't Go Away. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Faith, commissioned George Barner, the public opinion pollster, to conduct a national survey in which he asked a scientifically selected cross-section of adults, if you could ask God one question, and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? The top response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Why do we suffer? Well, this morning I want to give you some reasons from God's perspective. We suffer because we are part of a fallen humanity, and consequently, we live in an unjust world. We live in a world of suffering because Adam and Eve disobeyed God and fell. Now, some have asked this question. Why didn't God create a world without human freedom? Well, that would have been a world of robots without humans. Would it have been a place without hate? Yes. A place without suffering? Yes. But it also would have been a world without love, which is the highest value in the universe. That highest good could never have been experienced because love, our love for God, our love for each other, involves a choice. But with the granting of that choice comes the possibility that people would choose instead to hate. Let's look at Adam and Eve again. God created a world where Adam and Eve were free to choose to obey and love God or disobey and turn away from him. Such a world with free will would necessarily be a place where sin would be possible. And indeed, that potentiality for sin was actualized. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And their sin was passed on to all the future generations. Romans 5.12 states it very clearly. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. The blame ultimately lies with us. God did his part. Perfectly, we're the ones that messed up. And the overwhelming majority of the pain and suffering in the world today is caused by man's choices to kill, to slander, to stray sexually, to break promises, to be reckless. All of these choices produced a world of injustice. It isn't fair, is the cry 
of multitudes. In the magazine, Discipleship Journal, I came across an article entitled, How Could God Let This Happen? Written by Gerald Sitzer. He writes about the undeniable reality of injustice. And here's a quote from that article. Sooner or later, injustice happens to us all. Yet knowledge of that fact never really prepares us for the pain of unjust circumstances when we experience them. All of us, end quote, all of us have probably experienced some type of suffering caused by the foolish or malicious choices that people make. So what are some of the sufferings that people go through because of injustice? Some injustice is obvious, such as rape, robbery, or murder. At other times, it may be less dramatic. A hardworking employee is passed over for promotion because she's a woman. A young athlete sits on the bench because his coach doesn't like him. These mundane cases of injustice can be especially difficult because the victims receive little public sympathy and have no recourse to justice. Listen to Sitzer's personal experience. Quote, The issue of injustice is not simply an academic question for me. I have experienced it firsthand, and it has taken everything in me to keep my spiritual equilibrium as a result. In the fall of 1991, a drunk driver lost control of his car and collided with our minivan, killing my mother, my wife, and one of my daughters. Because of a legal technicality, he was found not guilty. I spent months trying to make sense out of all the injustice of it all. End quote. In the wake of tragedy, what are the reactions that people have? Well, at first you might be numb, shocked, confused. God might seem silent for some time. And then the questions come. What could possibly be the reason for this terrible tragedy? Is there a reason? And then a friend with good intentions trying to help might say, Oh, it's terrible, I know. But remember, all things do work together for God, for, uh, for good for those who love God. How? How can this possibly be good? And for whom? Many people struggle and ache over the reasons given for suffering. Oh, this is of Satan. God never intended for it to happen. If you had prayed harder... It needn't have happened. God didn't cause this. He just permitted it. (laughs) I'm not sure how much comfort this reason is or what real bearing it has on a painful situation. If a mother sees her small daughter about to touch a hot stove and doesn't prevent her from doing it, is the mother not responsible for the injury? She didn't cause it but she could have prevented it. So how does it help to know 
that God just permitted it. Most of us want life not only under our control, but also fair. When we suffer loss, we claim our right to justice, and we resent circumstances that get in the way. We expect to live in a society where virtue is rewarded and vice punished. Hard work succeeds and laziness fails. Decency wins and meanness loses. We feel violated when life doesn't turn out that way. When we get what we do not deserve and do not get what we deserve. Let me give you a personal example. In September of 2016, my wife of 62 years died from Alzheimer's disease. I struggled as I watched her battle the disease for 17 years. I took care of her at home for 14 years, and she was in a nursing home for the final three years. As I watched Lorena, who was a happy, beautiful talented and capable capable woman go down the path of decline and become an immobile and mentally vacant body, I cried out, Lord, it isn't fair. She doesn't deserve this. However, in the midst of the suffering I was going through, there was something very important I had to consider. God's sovereignty. Listen to what Gerald Setzer says, quote, All of us must decide what to believe about the sovereignty of God. Our experience with painfully unfair situations makes the decision both relevant and difficult. What we decide will in large measure determine how we respond to the unjust circumstances that forced the question upon us in the first place. Is God in control or not? If he is, then we can trust him as he works out his redemptive plan in our lives, even in the face of injustice. If he's not, then we should abandon faith and find our own way through the hard times of life. The choice is stark and simple. But the struggle we may go through to make the decision of such magnitude is anything but simple. I had to decide what I believed about the sovereignty of God. Either God is in control or he's not. You must decide what you believe. One of Satan's tools is putting doubts in our mind concerning God's sovereignty. But the Bible is clear. God is sovereign. He's the one who created us, provides for us, and directs the course of our lives. Listen to some verses from Psalm 139, and I'm reading from the Living Bible Version. Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You chart the path ahead of me. Every moment you know where I am. You saw me before I was born and scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. 
every day was recorded in your book. How precious it is, Lord, to realize that you are thinking about me constantly. I can't even count how many times a day your thoughts turn towards me. You see, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.8, again in the Living Bible, God has showered down upon us the richness of his grace for how well he understands us and knows what is best for us at all times. God is always awake, always watching out for us, always loving us, always doing what is best for us if, if we believe he is sovereign. When I'm under attack, in God's sovereignty, he sees the arrow of the enemy coming towards me. Now, God could throw up a higher barrier to turn it away from me. But in his wisdom, he knows that this hard thing is necessary to form patience in my life. So God relaxes his guard and lets the arrow strike me, just as he did with Job of old. When experiences of suffering take the joy from me, when unexplainable trials crowd into my life, I can know for certain that whatever happens to me is under God's control. Because God sees all. God knows all. God transcends all. If a single biblical story affirms God's sovereignty... It's the story of Joseph, found in Genesis 37 through 50. Joseph experienced terrible injustice. He was betrayed by his brothers, who sold him as a slave to a caravan of merchants traveling to Egypt. They, in turn, sold him to Potiphar, a member of Pharaoh's court. Joseph served Potiphar well and won his trust, but Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. And when Joseph resisted her advances, she accused him of attacking her. Joseph ended up in prison. Eventually, Joseph was released from prison. He was appointed second in command over all of Egypt because he correctly interpreted a dream that had troubled Pharaoh, a dream that foretold a seven-year famine. In addition to interpreting this dream, Joseph advised Pharaoh to establish a plan to avert the disaster. After Joseph's appointment, he implemented a national project of storing surplus grain and then supervised the distribution of that grain when famine struck. The famine forced Joseph's brothers to travel to Egypt to buy grain where they were reunited and eventually reconciled. The story concludes with Joseph's family settling and prospering in Egypt. Now, the account gives us two perspectives on the sovereignty of God. The author of the story provides the first perspective. Twice he writes, the Lord was with Joseph. And surprisingly, he makes this comment on two occasions when Joseph was the victim of gross injustice. Joseph himself provides the second perspective on God's sovereignty. His comment to his brothers at the end of the story indicates 
that he believed God was with him, even after so much injustice. He said to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. St. Augustine is quoted as saying, Since God is the highest good, he would not allow any evil to exist in his works unless his omnipotence and goodness were such as to bring good even out of evil. So one reason for our suffering is because we are part of a fallen humanity and consequently we live in an unjust world. Another cause for suffering is because of our sins and stupidity. When pride and selfishness destroy a Christian marriage, the suffering is caused by sin. When a car full of young people is going 90 miles an hour and the driver loses control and crashes, killing everybody in it, the cause is stupidity and rejection of the transit laws. When someone says he's a Christian and they become greedy and dishonest in their business dealings and suffers a loss of money and clients, the cause is the lack of running his business according to biblical principles. Sin and stupidity cause so much suffering. Now, the third reason... We suffer <clears throat> because suffering is part of God's plan for his people. Probably Romans 8.28 is the promise in the Bible that most people claim when they're going through some kind of suffering. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The truth of Romans 8.28 is invalid to an unbeliever. God's promise that everything will work together for good is conditional. The condition is that the promise is only for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So what then is the good for which all things work together? The ultimate good the good that shines above everything that God wants us to have is explained in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The ultimate good is not happiness in this life. It's not that souls would be one to Christ, not even that finally Christ would be glorified though these things may result. No, the good that Romans 8.28 is talking about, the good that causes God to work all things together for, for us, is that we be like Jesus. Fashioned in his image, conformed to be like him. To paraphrase it, God causes all things to work together for the ultimate good of making us like Jesus. The story is told 
of an overweight woman who went to a diet center. After weighing her, the doctor took her to a mirror, and on the mirror he outlined her figure in the proportions that he wanted her to be. Weeks of intense dieting and exercise followed, and weekly she would stand in front of the mirror discouraged because her ample proportions would not fit within the confines of the silhouette. So with renewed determination, she dieted and exercised until one day, standing before that mirror, she was conformed to its image. Now, we will never be conformed totally to the image of Christ until we reach heaven. But God is in the business of helping us shape up And suffering is one of the tools he uses. The fact is, it's the world's greatest sufferers who have produced the most shining examples of unconquerable faith. In one of David Jeremiah's sermons I watched on television, he mentioned a survey that was taken with a thousand people. The question asked was, What has contributed the most to your spiritual growth? The overwhelming response was very surprising. What had contributed the most to spiritual growth was not transformational teaching and preaching, Not being in a small group. It was not reading deeply religious books. Not energetic worship experiences. It was not finding meaningful ways to serve. The most important thing at the time most of the people surveyed grew spiritually was during suffering. People grew more spiritually during seasons of loss and pain. So ask yourself this question. How have you, how have the difficulties and challenges, even pain, shaped your character and values? How are you different today as a result of the suffering you've had to face? Suffering is God's method for developing certain qualities in us to make us more like Jesus. Listen to Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Also, it is God's method to equip us for service. The Apostle Paul suffered terribly. And in 2 Corinthians, he takes the veil off of his private life, and we see his sufferings. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now, it's interesting that, interesting that Paul begins this letter writing about comfort. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. God is never absent when we go through difficult times. In this passage, Paul mentions two specific reasons for the suffering of Christians as being part of God's plan. Verse 4, God who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see, God uses suffering so that we can be equipped to enter into the sufferings of others and be a source of comfort. I think most of you probably know Ron Franklin. I met Ron many years ago, and we were drawn together because his wife, Carol, was going through Alzheimer's, as my wife, Lorena, was going through Alzheimer's. Carol was further down the road of decline than Lorena was. And so when I would face a problem and I didn't know what to do, I'd email Ron and say, Ron, I'm going through this. Did you go through it? What did you do? And he would reply. With the comfort he had received from God, he comforted me. And I have a stack of emails that during that time period, he answered my questions. And it was a comfort to me. So God uses suffering to equip us to be able to comfort others. And I've, been, I've had the privilege and opportunity to use my experience of being comforted by God to help other people going through the same thing. So God permits suffering so that we can learn to depend on him and not on our own strength. Suffering does that, doesn't it? It forces us to trust totally in the Lord. So let's have a review. We suffer because we're part of a fallen humanity, and consequently, we live in an unjust world. We suffer because of our sins and stupidity. And we suffer because suffering is part of God's plan for his people. Now, the only way to have and maintain victory in our sufferings is to see it from an eternal perspective, God's perspective. This perspective separates that which is transitory from that which is eternal. That which is transitory, such as injustices and pain, will not last forever. What we acquire through suffering, such as character, dependence on God, faith, experiences to help others, these are the things that are eternal, that abide for the praise of his glory. Most of you have probably heard the name Johnny Erickson Tada. 
Johnny was 16 years old when, in 1967, a diving accident left her quadriplegic in a wheelchair. She's now 70 years old. And God, as a result of that accident, gave her a fantastic ministry to the handicapped worldwide. In an article she wrote for the Discipleship magazine entitled, When Life Isn't Fair, she relates the story of a young mother named Vicki who became a close friend. This is Vicki's story. Vicki's husband broke their marriage vows and left her alone to care for their two-year-old son. She had to start looking for a job. She answered an ad in the paper, and, but as she entered the rundown office to be interviewed, she had a, a creepy feeling. Something just didn't seem right. After a brief interview, the man grabbed her, threw her against the wall, and ripped her blouse. I asked him to send me someone just like you, he said. Well, Vicky wrestled, straining to push him away, and suddenly there was a bang. The room and the man spiraled round and round as Vicky slumped to the floor. She was paralyzed, shot in the neck. In a crazy turnabout, the man put her in his car and dumped her off at the emergency room of a local hospital and then fled. Later, the attacker was caught. He had three other convictions of attempted rape and was released just after three years in jail. Vicky would spend the rest of her life in a wheelchair, completely paralyzed. In this article, Johnny tells about, Vicky, about meeting Vicky in a rehab center and says she was deeply moved by the anguish on her face. A friendship developed between the two, and Vicky accepted Christ as her Lord and Savior. Sometime later, Johnny received a note of encouragement from Vicky, and this is what she wrote. I'm being prepared to touch the wonderful scarred hands of our Lord. To know that I am sharing with Christ in suffering is really uplifting and comforting. I can truly say that my wheelchair is a gift from God and that earth can never meet my deepest longings. Only Jesus can. I want to throw off all that hinders my path to heaven. When I meet Jesus face to face, I want to have as much tangible proof as I can to show him that I love him and have been faithful. My journey has been a difficult one. And for as long as the Lord leaves me here on this earth, it will continue to be hard. But get this, what an honor to suffer for Christ. Your sister in Christ, Vicki. Johnny adds this comment. Not everybody needs a bullet through the neck and a breach of justice to grasp an end-of-time perspective. Oh, the justice of it all. But Vicky has left in the dust and trampled under her wheels all the talk about fairness. She's leaving it in God's hands. Instead, 
she's concentrating on preparing herself for eternity. And she inspires us to do no less. I want to conclude this message with these words from the Apostle Paul. Romans 8:18. 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And to that I say, hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's not easy to suffer, but it really helps when you, we know that you are with us, that you're in control, and you have a purpose for the difficult things we have to go through. Lord, help us to be as Vicky, faithful, in spite of what we have to go through, knowing that someday we will be with you in heaven. And in that day, there will be no more suffering. We praise you for this hope. In Jesus' name, amen.